Aren't we blessed? You guys can go see Miss Allison. When you see our kids, will you encourage them and tell them how thankful? This is only one group. We had another group this at the early at the early service. They did a great job. Great job. Well, it's going to get a little tense in here today. Is that okay? Look at the person next to you and say, uh, I'm glad to know that your family is more dysfunctional than my family. <laughs> We're going to be in the book of Genesis today. If you would turn there. We're going to be in God's Word. First of all, um, I noticed this morning that there are over 200 signed up for the men and women's retreats coming up. That's a big deal. Um, I just want you to know, ladies, there's more men signed up than there is women. <laughs> men, way to set the pace. I know the women have got a little bit more time, but I don't think they're going to catch up with us. But, uh, but anyway, just wanted you to know that. I also wanted you to know uh, Love Week is coming up in just a couple of weeks within our community. We celebrate, and i got a hum going on up here, Drew. I guess we'll be able to fix it in a second. Something's happening. But um, it's in that mid-range. But anyway, um, February the 11th through the 19th, we will as a community celebrate what's called Love Week. It's our opportunity as churches, individuals, businesses, civic groups, uh, our county government, our city government, to be able to come together to love on this community. And there are multiple things that are happening. Our challenge to you is that you will either participate in something that's already been planned or you will go create your own opportunity of loving on this community in various ways, carry random acts of kindness. Maybe you have a business and there's something that you'd like to do as a business with your employees just to make a difference. We're going to challenge you guys to do that and hopefully hear stories. If you want to see some of the things that have already been planned, you can go to the website at loveweekfp.com. There's a listing there, some things, plus you'll be hearing in media what's going on. But anyway, the little stories about the story today is about the inquisitive boy that went to his dad and asked his dad, where did, they, where did he come from? Dad thought he would be funny, and he said, well, we, we came, I heard one time we came from monkeys. Well, really confused, the boy went by, you know, and he just sort of thought, well, good gracious of life. A little bit later on, he saw his mom in the house, and she was doing something. He said, Mom, i got to ask you a question. He said, um, Dad said we came from monkeys. Is that true? And Mom said, your father. And uh, she said, no, honey. She said, God created us, and it all began with Adam and Eve. And she, he said, well, Mom, why, why, why did Dad say we came from monkeys? And he said, well, son, he was talking about his side of the family. <laughs> There is a little bit of dysfunction in all of us, and the reality is that there is dysfunction in every family. As a matter of fact, the buzzword over the past few years has been dysfunction or dysfunctional. And the guy that we're going to be talking about today and his family, within that, you're going to see an awful lot of dysfunction. Um, but this is what I want you to get today. Is we, if there's nothing else that you get, I want you to understand that God still works in the dysfunction. Amen. Let me say that one more time because I don't think you understood me because I didn't hear you. God is still at work in the dysfunction. Amen? Amen? Very much so. Yes, very much so. 
So we're going to start out, we're going to be in Genesis 31, but I'm going to back it up one verse so it give us a little bit more context to where we are. And so this is what the scripture has to say there in Genesis chapter 30, verse 43. Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep and goats, female and male servants, and many camels and donkeys. And then it says in chapter 31, but Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons, his brother-in-laws, his sons were grumbling about him. Jacob had robbed our father of everything, they said, but he has gained all of his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude towards him. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land. I want you to go back to the land of your father and your grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was watching his flocks, and he said to them, I've noticed that your father's attitude towards me has changed, but the God of my father has been with me. You know how hard I have worked for your father, but, how, but he has cheated me, changed my wages ten times, and here's our words, but God, but God has not allowed him to do me any harm, for if he said the speckled animals will be your wages, the whole flock began to produce speckled young. And when he changed his mind and said the striped animals will be your wages, then the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and given them to me. You know, as we read that, can you sense the tension? Can, can you, y'all, are, y'all are like asleep this morning. Can, can, you, can you sense the tension and the dysfunction in this passage? I mean, it's like, it's like, ugh, oh my goodness. But the reality is that there's dysfunction in every one of our families to some extent because we're sinful people. We're broken people. And broken people break people, don't they? What's the old saying? Hurt people hurt people. Some are just better at disguising it than other people. Well, I set it up front. I want to say it again. This is what I want you to remember. But even in the dysfunction, God is at work. God is work at work even in our dysfunction. And the first point I wanted to make today is that there's dysfunction in every family. Let's go back for a second and let's think about Jacob's family. Let's think about his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. And let's think about his mom and dad, Isaac and Rebekah. And, and these, are, these are four people that we would have seen considered to be heroes in the Scripture. And yet they had their own issues. I mean, Abraham, for goodness sake, I mean, this was a man of faith. But this is also a man who had a problem telling the truth, as did his son Isaac. Which reminds me of this. Don't ever think that the character traits that we have as adults, as parents, won't, wake, won't work their way down the generational line. That's an oh me. It could be a yes, but it also could be an oh me. It was, it was Isaac married, married a woman by the name of Rebekah, and they had a set of twins by Esau and Jacob. Remember, maybe you remember them. Esau was the older twin. Jacob was the younger twin. Esau was the one that was favored by his father. Jacob was the one that was, ferried, was, was favored by his mother. Esau was the one that was the hairy one. That's where his name comes from. He was the guy who liked to hunt and to fish and, and to build uh, castles and, and throw rocks and all that kind of stuff, whereas Jacob was just as comfortable staying back and watching some Netflix with his mom on TV. And early on in the story, we see Jacob and Esau, we see the dysfunction of favoritism. And at some point in all of our families, there's that there's that dysfunction. Maybe you've experienced that somewhere, somewhere in your family where somebody said, you love them more than you love me. My response to that was absolutely, yes. 
You're just now figuring that out. As soon as you figure that out, the easier things go. Yes. That usually stops the conversations in my house, and I haven't heard that really in a long, 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 long time. But favoritism of Jacob and Esau began before they were ever born because it was the Lord that said to Rebekah and back in Genesis 25 that the two sons in her womb would become two nations and they would be rivals and that the older son would serve the younger son, which is really odd because culturally it was the older son that would receive the blessing, not the younger son. But the Lord said here, no, that's not the way it's going to be, but it's going to be the, the older who will serve the younger, which is somewhat similar to the story of Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael being the older son of, of Abraham, but God said, no, he said, it's going to be, I, it's going to be um, Isaac who will be the son of promise. And if you can imagine a picture of Esau and, and, and Jacob being born, and as soon as Esau is born, here's Jacob being born right after him as this clinging to his heel. And at one point in, the, in, their, in their story, you see Esau, he goes out to hunt, and he comes back, he's hungry. Jacob's got some stew that he's fixing, and and listen, don't ever make big decisions on an empty stomach. Don't ever do that because you have a way of making some pretty dumb choices. And so Jacob said, man, I'll give you some stew, but I want your birthright. Give it to me. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll give it to you. I walked in the house just a couple of weeks ago. Meredith was making something, and I was hungry, and I thought to myself, man, it smells good in here, almost to the point that I was willing to trade any one of the kids at that moment in time to have what she had. Some kind of chicken stuff, but she can make it again because I liked it. It was great. Fast forward a few years in their lives when Isaac was old. The dad was old. He couldn't see. It was at that time he told Esau, I want you to go out. I want you to kill some wild game. I want you to bring it back. And at that time, I'll bless you. The only problem was mom overheard, Rebecca overheard the conversation, and she devises a plan. It was a well thought out. It was a premeditated plan that would eventually work. She would dress Jacob up in the, in the skin of the, the hair of a sheep. He would smell and he would feel just like his brother Esau, and he would talk like him. So the plan worked. They deceived his father. Isaac was the one that received the blessing, or Jacob received the blessing from, from Isaac. And it wasn't long after that we see in the story where Jacob flees and he's off and he's running, and he meets this little girl by the name of Rachel. He goes home with her to meet her father, and here's the young man who was known for deception that would meet the master deceiver himself, Laban, who happened to be, believe it or not, <laughs> that was his mother's brother, which meant that he was now in love with his cousin. Now, look, that may work in Tennessee, but it doesn't work here in Florida. So I just want to tell you guys that. And he asked for her hand in marriage, and Laban said, sure, you can marry my daughter, but you're going to have to work for her for seven years. It's going to cost you seven years. Uh, I thought about that, and I thought, well, you know, that would have been a great plan. I should have told Landon that when he asked for Abby's hand in marriage. I wonder if it would have worked for me. But it was in Genesis 29, 20 that we find the word. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel. And listen, guys, if you're looking for something to write into a card for your wife for this Valentine's, here it is right here. Look at what he says. But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days I know. So I, I just not gonna, I'm not going to charge you for that. That's simple. <laughs> but you can definitely write that in the card to your spouse for Valentine. So it worked. He worked seven years. But then on the wedding night, the ceremonies after the I do's, he only found out the next morning it wasn't Rachel he married, but it was Leah. That's a whole other sermon series. We can talk about that later on. But I can imagine what in the world he was thinking. 
And then we said, what in the world did you do? He goes, well, listen, I sort of forgot to tell you, but it's customary that the older daughter marries before the younger daughter. So if you really want to marry Rachel, you're going to have to work another seven years, to which he didn't have any problem doing that. And so Jacob snookered into working another seven years, so he had the opportunity to marry Rachel. And just on a side comment, don't, you don't want to write this down. You want to think about this. We always have an excuse for the lies and our deception just in case we're questioned. Think about your life. Think about the time you're trying to come up with an you're trying to come up, you're trying to come up with a thought and how many times in the midst of your deception or your lies do you come up with an excuse because you know that when you're questioned you're going to need to be able to have ready to have an answer. Does that make sense? After working another seven years, he married both. He's now now married to both Leah and Rachel. He also has two concubines and a lot of kids. And this is what we find in Genesis 31. But Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons were grumbling about him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything. They said he's gained all of his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude toward him. Even though Laban tried to deceive and take advantage of Jacob, God continued to bless him and now add to the dysfunction, the dysfunction or the attitude of jealousy. When Jacob left home after deceiving his father and stealing his brother's blessings, he probably have thought, well, now that's that part of my life. I can move away from it. I'll never have to worry about that. I can move on past that. But all he did was discover more dysfunction. I read at one point in a study that was done in reference to dysfunction, and I simplified the summary of it, but here it is. When leaving home, it's normal for people to think that they'll be able to leave behind their childhood problems, only to realize later after after leaving that the names and the faces may change, but many of the same problems and feelings will continue to exist. Wherever we go, we have a tendency to take that dysfunction with us. The basis of that dysfunction is the result of a three-letter word we call sin, self-indulging nature. Going back to the beginning of creation, this is how Paul explained it when he was talking. He was writing to the church at Rome. He would write, when Adam's sin, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone has sin. And so what sin does, it affects every person. It impacts every family, and it not only impacts every family, it impacts every person that loves us. That's what it does. We live in a broken world filled with broken people, and there is no such thing as a perfect family. Sometimes I encounter people, oh, I'm just looking for the perfect church, and I'm thinking to myself, well, don't come here. Because the reality is that this, this room is filled with broken people. This church family is filled with broken people, dysfunctional people at best. When we go back and we look, it's, but I want you to understand this, that even in the midst of our dysfunction, that there is hope. Jacob himself, he came from a dysfunctional, deceitful family. He himself was deceitful and dysfunctional. He married into a deceitful and dysfunctional family. And look at what it says in verse 3. In spite of the deceitfulness and dysfunction, it says that the Lord said to Jacob, Return, go back to the land of your father and grandfather, to your relatives there, and I will be with you. 
And in spite of all the chaos in their life and all the dysfunction in their life, the second thought that I want you to remember is God is still capable of functioning in all of the dysfunction. It's important to remember that. Back in, in verse 22, if you go a little bit further in chapter 20, uh, there in 31, you'll notice that um, three days after Jacob left with his entourage, it was B. Laban who would find out and come to find out what had taken place. And, and in the midst of that, he gathered up his own entourage to go after Jacob. And it, take, it would take them seven days to reach Jacob. But that night before they would meet them, the, the angel of the Lord went to Laban and said, Leave him alone. Don't mess with him. Leave him alone. Let him go. And if you go on to read, there's even more dysfunction that would take place in this family and in this story. But what I want us to see is that in the midst of all the dysfunction, God is still at work. And I say that because we see God not only speaking to Jacob, but we also see God speaking to Laban. And it's important to note that God can not only speak to imperfect people, but he can use imperfect people as well. God functions in our dysfunction. That is the gospel of Jesus. Amen? That's why Paul would say when writing to the believers at Corinth in, in chapter 1, verse 27, Instead, God chose the things of the world, considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. It's, it's so important for us to remember no amount of good work or no amount of knowledge will surpass what Jesus did on the cross. Adam blew it, as eventually would Noah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had a tendency toward deception and dishonesty. It was Moses who would lose his temper. It was David who would commit adultery and murder. It was Peter who would deny Jesus three times. And yet God not only used them, He not only spoke to them, but He used them to accomplish great things for His kingdom and for His purpose which reminds me that the failures and the dysfunctions of life that we may experience don't have to define us. That even the dysfunctions that God is at work. So every family is dysfunctional. God is capable of functioning inside of the dysfunction. And the third thought is this. Growth is seeing God in the dysfunction. Notice that what Jacob does in the middle of everything that was going on. Look at what it says in verse 4 and following. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was watching his flock. And he said to them, I have noticed that your father's attitude to me has changed, but the God of my fathers has been with me. He said, you know how hard I've worked for your father, but he has cheated me. He's changed my wages 10 times. And there's our words, but God has allowed him to do, has not allowed him to do me any harm. For if he said the speckled animals will be your wages, the whole flock began to produce speckled young. And when he changed his mind and said the striped animals will be your wages, then the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and given them to me. And here inside of Jacob's story, we see evidence of spiritual growth from where he was, from where he had been, from the schemes of his mother, from stealing the blessings of his brother, to running and thinking that God had abandoned him, all of a sudden to be at this part in the story. And Jacob's focus is different because there's a sense of God's presence. There's a sense of God's awareness. And three times we see here in this passage, three times we see that, there's a, that, that Jacob makes note of God's involvement and work. Look at what he says there in verse 5 in reference to God's presence. He said, I have 
have noticed that your father's attitude has changed, but the God of my fathers has been with me, regardless of how you may feel. I've noticed that God has been with me. He referenced God's protection. He says in verse 7, but he has cheated me. He's changed my wages, but God has not allowed him to do me any, any harm. And in verse 9, he acknowledged God's partnership, that even in everything that Laban had done to hurt him as a person, he recognized God's blessing on his life. He could see God at work. There was growth. And don't miss this. Don't miss this because it would be later on down the line that one of his youngest sons, Joseph, the same attitude, it would be the, it'd be the attitude that his son Joseph would eventually demonstrate when he had the opportunity to take his brother's lives who had wronged him and betrayed him and hurt him and had sold him into slavery. When it came and he had the opportunity to kill him, he, he wouldn't do it. And he said, no. He said, I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He was able to see with a different set of lens, a different set of eyes. It's the same attitude and perspective that David would exhibit when King Saul was trying to attack him and trying to kill him and take advantage of him. And when the opportunity came for David to be able to kill Saul, he said, no, I'm not going to replace what God has put in place. I will not take Saul's life. Instead of taking matters into my own hands, God, I'm going to allow you to take care of it. I'm going to trust you even though it would be a whole lot more comfortable for me to handle it myself. It's the same perspective that God, that Paul would write, the Apostle Paul would write when writing to the believers at Rome, what he would say in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It reminds me of a conversation I was having with somebody not long ago, somebody that had been hurt, somebody that had been wronged, and they dealt with this pain for several months. And they finally came to the place of saying, I don't, I don't want this to dictate my life any longer, so I'm going to do something about it. And so that person called a meeting, said, I want to get together, and I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about what took place. See, instead of talking about them, they talked to them to start off with. And they started the meeting out, so I want to pray with you first. They prayed. And the first words after, after praying was, I come in peace. Pretty big. When they finished up the conversation, they said, uh, and now I can leave in peace. See, there's something that happens when we put our God glasses on. When we not only see that God is at work, but we can live believing that God is in control and he's on the throne and when we begin to live that way, that regardless of what circumstance that it may be that we are facing in our lives, what happens is all of a sudden, it's not as confrontational as it once was, but it's transformational. Are you with me? Y'all can say yes. Because if you don't understand it, I'll go back and explain it again. Listen, when you come to the place and all of a sudden you take yourself out and you understand the dysfunction and you recognize that God can still work in the dysfunction, spiritual growth takes place when you say, okay, God, I'm going to give this to you because I know you're at work and I know you're trying to accomplish something for your purpose and your will and your kingdom. Yet how many of us in the midst of struggles not only find ourselves wrestling with the circumstance, but we also find ourselves wrestling eventually sometimes with God 
and asking ourselves, God, where are you? Where are you? (laughs) Write this down someplace. God's not intimidated by your falls or your failures. He's not. I'm reminded of the story of little Johnny and Sally. They went to Grandma and Grandpa's house to visit, and it was Johnny's birthday, and Grandma had been holding a present for him, and when he arrived, she gave him a slingshot, and she said, here, son, won't you go practice some out in the woods? And he went, and he couldn't hit nothing. He tried to hit pine cones. He tried to hit all kinds, but he just couldn't do anything. He had the hardest time. He was walking back to the house, going back to eat, eat supper that, that afternoon, and, and there was Grandma's pet duck in the yard, and and so he just thought, well, whatever. And he just wheeled back and he, and he shot the slingshot and it hit the duck in the head and killed him dead as a doornail. Scared him to death. He was terrified. He ran over, grabbed the duck, went to the woods and buried him in a hole behind the bushes. Only to, when he stood up from burying the duck, he stood up and there was his sister Sally standing there. And they didn't say a word. She just stood at him looking, you know. Supper that night. Grandma said, you know, said, um, Sally, why don't you stay behind and help me with the uh, dishes? And she said, oh, Grandma, I'd love to help you with the dishes. She said, but Johnny would love to, for, you to, to, for him to help you. She said, he told me this afternoon he'd like to help you. Isn't that right, Johnny? <laughs> Johnny said, yes, ma'am, I'd really like to help you. Next day after lunch, Grandma said, Sally, why don't you stay back and help me? We'll, we'll work on some things to get ready for supper while while Johnny goes fishing with Grandpa, and, and Sally said, no. I said, Grandma, I'm just telling you, she's, I think Johnny would really like to stay because he's been talking about how he'd like to spend time with you and help learn how to cook. This would be a great opportunity for him, wouldn't it, Johnny? Isn't that right, Johnny? Wouldn't you like to stay behind? Yes, I would, you know. And this type of activity went on for several days until finally one day, one day Johnny couldn't hold it any longer, and he went to his grandma, and he was crying. He said, Grandma, I'm so sorry. I, I killed your pet duck. And she said, son, is there something else you want to tell me? He goes, what do you mean? Aren't you mad? She said, he said, no. She said, no I, I, honey, I was standing at the window when you killed the duck, and I saw you. And he said, why didn't you say anything? She said, well, I, I, didn't, I'm just, I was just wondering how long you were going to allow your sister to hold you hostage. Now, there's a deeper meaning behind that because I wonder how many of us are allowing the past sins of the past to hold us hostage in that which is the present how many of us you know I I tell you that story because inside of our lives there's dysfunction and that dysfunction is sin and what sin keeps us from it keeps us from our relationship with Jesus so you think you may hide it but you don't hide it what sin does is it destroys intimacy not only intimacy with Um, our heavenly father but intimacy here on on this earth but Jesus reminded us that even in the greatest of our dysfunctions that he would function and God was at work in our dysfunction on the cross see that was God's solution to our sin God's solution was Jesus who would come who would give his life as a sacrifice for our sins so that we would never have to live in the bondage of that sin any longer, but that we could live in freedom. But all we had to do was come to the place that we were willing to receive him and to trust him and obey him. That even in the dysfunction that God was at work demonstrating in his love, that while we were still in sin, Jesus gave his life for us. 
Would you bow with me today? We're going to leave our lights open. Bow your heads with me. And, you know, as we reflect on this morning, we're going to have what's called an invitational time. There's going to be two questions that I'm going to ask eventually. One has to do with your relationship with Jesus. And today, I just would like to ask you to question as you reflect on your life, has there been a time when you've surrendered your life to Jesus? That in your dysfunction, you, you came to understand what Jesus did and the fact that he gave his life as a sacrifice for you. Do you know today without a shadow of a doubt, a shadow of a doubt that you, if you were to die today, do you know where you spend eternity? And you could, could you say to me this morning, Pastor Sid, if I were to die today, I know exactly where I'd spend eternity and it would be in heaven. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm not asking you if, if, you've, um, if you've gone to church. I'm not asking you if you're a member of a church. I'm asking you that if you were to die today, do you have a certainty that if, if you were to die, you would spend eternity in heaven? And if that's you today, just in the quietness of this moment, what I'd like for you to do is a, just as a symbol of um, an exercise saying, I know Jesus and I'm assured of my relationship with him. What I'm going to ask you to do is just to stand up where you are and sit right back down. I know Jesus. Just as a sign, I know Jesus. I want you just to stand up and sit right back down. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And Pastor said, my standing is my affirmation that I know Jesus. Just sit back down. Maybe there's some of you here that for whatever the reason you can't say that. My question is, what is it that keeps you from making the most important decision of your life? <laughs> I had a young man in my office this past week that made a decision last week in the service. And I said, what is it that, what, what, what brought you to that, that place that you made that decision? He said, Pastor Sid, it's that thing you say every Sunday. What is it that keeps you from making the most important decision of my life? And he said, I looked at my mom and I said, it's time. It's time. And maybe it's your time today. I want you to know that God is at work and even in your dysfunction. And today, if you're here and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, man, I would love for you to pray with me. There's three questions that I'd like to ask you. Number one, do you believe that you're a sinner? Number two, do you believe that Jesus died for you? Number three, are you today willing to give your life to say, I want to live for him? And if that's you today, and today you want to make that decision for Christ. I wish I could tell you that it's a prayer that saves you, but it's not. But it's the attitude of the heart. And if you're here today, and that's the type of decision that you would like to make, I want to follow Jesus. You can pray this simple prayer with me. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it just to yourself. Jesus, today I recognize my dysfunction. I recognize my sin. And I realize that you came to give your life by dying on a cross for me. Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to give you control of my life in Jesus' name. And with heads still bowed and eyes closed, if that's you today, just as we did earlier about those who were assured of their salvation, if that was you today and you prayed that prayer with me and you say, today I want to give my life to Jesus, I'm just going to ask you just to stand where you are and then sit back down. Is there anyone here this morning? Anyone? Yes. Anyone else? For those of you that had stood, I, I would love to, to speak to you after the service if you're willing. I'd love to talk to you more about this decision to follow Jesus. But there may be a third group here. Some of you that are carrying around a weight. Yes, you know that you're a follower of Christ. 
But at this point in life, you're struggling with some dysfunction in your life. Maybe it's family issues. Maybe it's job-related issues. And you're struggling to keep your eyes on Jesus. You're struggling to see God at work. You're having a hard time. And just in a sense of authenticity, man, I I love this church family because it's not just about coming and, and doing some church stuff and going home. This is an attitude. This is a place that we have a chance to acknowledge the stuff that we're walking through. But if you're here today and there's some dysfunction that's going on in your family, going on around you, going on at the job place and you're wrestling, man, I, I, and you're having a hard time keeping your eyes on Jesus, I would love for you to stand right there where you are and just remain standing for a minute. Anybody? Several people. I'm struggling today. I'm wrestling. We have people in the balcony. We have people downstairs. Anybody else? Church family, I want you to open up your eyes with me for a second. There are people that are scattered all over this, this auditorium that are standing. If there's somebody that you know, you're close to somebody and you'd like to, I'd love for you to maybe just go to them, put your hands on them this morning just as a sign of encouragement to let them know that you're praying for them with them. And we want to just finish up our time this morning by praying together. And I want you to understand this, that God is at work in the dysfunction, but you got to keep your eyes on Him. I'm reminded of the words in Psalms, I think it's Psalms 84, when they were walking through the valley of Baca and they said there was those, those, that valley would become a place of refreshing springs. There's things that we learn in the valley that we don't learn any other place. There's things that we learn in the time of dysfunction that about God and his faithfulness and his provision that we don't learn at any other times. But you got to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. you got to keep your eyes focused on Jerusalem at those times. If not, it'll become a waste and barren land. So as we pray, would you just commit to pray with me this morning for these that are standing? Father, what a blessing it is to have this, this, uh, this response today. These that have said that I just want you to know that I'm wrestling. Uh, Father, what a privilege it is that, that we can come before you and recognize that even in the dysfunction of, of our, our lives, that God, that you're at work, help us to, to remain committed to keeping our eyes and our focus on you. I thank you for these that have been bold enough today, courageous enough to, to acknowledge before our church family, I'm struggling, I'm wrestling, and I, I want you to pray for me. That's a big deal. We don't have to live in isolation as believers, but we got the support of one another. Help us to consistently remember that in the times that are dark, that are dreary, that are discouraging. The devil wants us to isolate ourselves, but that's not who we are as Christ followers. But there's strength in the family. I'm praying today for these that are standing in whatever situation it may be. Maybe it's in marital issues. Maybe it's in family issues. Maybe it's in work-related issues. Maybe it's extended family. I don't know where it's at, but you do. Help us just to be reminded to lean into you and help us as church family to lean into one another because we need that. And Father, as we get ready to close this time, what a blessing it is to be reminded that as we walk out into this world that you have called us, you've positioned us to be your hands and feet to this community, to be your ambassadors. Help us not to just be willing to speak the truth. Help us to be willing to live the truth because in that they will see Jesus in us. Father, may we be bold in our testimony, not complacent, not shallow. Thank you, Father, for hearing us today, for the written word, for what it brings to us, the challenge, as well as the encouragement. 
Today, help us to be reminded that God, even in the dysfunction, there's hope and that you're at work. Help us to put our glasses on and not forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.